Section 17 of The Ocean, a general account of the science of the sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean, a general account of the science of the sea, by John Murray. Chapter 9, Marine Deposits, Part 1. Many thousands of samples of deposits have been obtained from the floor of the ocean from all depths and in all latitudes. These have been carefully examined and compared, with the result that we can now form a very good general idea of the composition and distribution, both horizontally and with regard to depth, of the various types. It is true that the samples from the sounding tube are usually small in quantity, but these have very frequently been supplemented by very large quantities from the dredge and trawl. Our knowledge of these deposits is limited to the upper layers, for the sounding tubes, trawls and dredges do not sink deeper than three feet, and generally only a few inches into them. The rocks of the land surfaces are continually undergoing disintegration through atmospheric and other agencies. The products of these weathering processes are ultimately carried into the ocean by rivers and winds. In the case of rivers, the materials are either in solution or suspension, and the particles in suspension are for the most part deposited on the seafloor whenever the salt and fresh water mix. It is well known that fine clay matter in fresh water is at once precipitated upon the addition of a little salt. The detrital matter carried to the ocean by rivers are thus laid down near shore, the sands and gravels coming to rest in shallow water, and the finer clayey particles being deposited in deeper water. The winds often carry the dust of deserts and of volcanic eruptions very great distances, and these can be detected in the deposits of deep water. Another volcanic product requires special mention, viz. pumice. This areola substance, when it reaches the ocean either from rivers or volcanic outbursts, floats for a long time on the surface. The separate blocks are knocked against one another by the waves, small particles are broken off and fall to the bottom and thus pumice is disseminated all over the sea floor. The floating blocks are sometimes covered with cirripeds and other marine animals, but eventually they become waterlogged and sink to the bottom, where they are ultimately decomposed into clay. Very many samples of these pumice stones have been dredged from all depths and in all stages of decomposition. The materials of submarine eruptions are doubtless likewise present, but when of small size, they are difficult to distinguish from those born from land surfaces. With the exception of certain secondary products formed in situ, these are the chief sources of the mineral constituents of marine deposits. Next in importance to the above-mentioned mineral particles are the remains of organisms, and chiefly the shells and skeletons of those which secrete calcium carbonate. In shallow water, the remains of calcareous algae, of foraminifera, of corals, of mollusks, and of other marine invertebrates, form immense deposits, as for instance off coral reefs, where the percentage of calcium carbonate in the deposit often exceeds 90. These calcareous deposits are especially characteristic of the tropical regions, but the calcium carbonate shells are present in the deposits of all latitudes. In deposits laid down on the floor of the ocean far from land, it is not the shells of bottom-living, benthonic, organisms that predominate, but the shells of pelagic, planktonic, organisms, such as coccospheres, rhabdospheres, 
pelagic foraminifera, pteropods, and other mollusks. In all but the very greatest depths, these shells and skeletons accumulate, and deposits of pteropod, or Globigerina ooze, may contain over 80% of calcium carbonate, due to the presence of these pelagic shells. Again, the siliceous frustules of diatoms, or the siliceous spicules and skeletons of radiolaria, may predominate in the deposits far from land. These have fallen to the bottom after the death of the organisms, just as in the case of the pteropods and pelagic foraminifera. But in marine deposits, the siliceous spicules of sponges which lived on the bottom can also be detected. The foregoing are, then, the principal constituents of marine deposits. But there are others which are not so abundant, such as small spherules of extraterrestrial origin, and secondary products which have been formed in situ in the deposits, such as manganese iron nodules, phosphatic, baritic and calcareous nodules, glauconite, and zeolitic crystals. Some things that we should expect to find are extremely rare. The ordinary bones of fishes are seldom observed in the deposits, with the exception of teeth and otoliths, and the teeth of sharks, the ear bones of whales, and the dense beaks of ziphioid whales have been dredged in considerable numbers in some areas, but these are usually much corroded. The more areola bones of whales are represented by only a few decomposing fragments. These various inorganic and organic constituents of marine deposits are present in the samples in very different proportions, varying according to the distance from shore, the depth of water, the latitude, and the physical and chemical conditions of the surface waters. There is a wide distinction between a typical example of a glibigerina ooze and one of red clay, or between a pteropod ooze and a diatom ooze, or a blue mud or green sand and a radiolarian ooze. But these varieties may merge by numerous gradations, the one into the other. Marine deposits might be classified in a great many ways, but after much consideration it has been found that a combined chemical and microscopical analysis gives the best result, and it is the most useful for the geologist and the physical geographer. The microscope shows us that the calcium carbonate in the deposit consists mainly of dead shells of organisms, and we can tell whether these have lived on the surface of the sea or on the bottom, as well as the orders, genera, and species to which they belong. In the same way, the source of the siliceous remains of organisms and of the mineral particles can be determined. It is easy to determine the percentage of calcium carbonate in the deposits by chemical analysis, and to indicate the nature of the organisms which yield this. The residue, after the removal of the lime by weak acid, is then subjected to microscopic analysis. The following is a sample description. SS Britannia Sounding number 75, May 23rd, 1899, 39 degrees 37 minutes north, 35 degrees 23 minutes west, 2,330 fathoms. Globigerina ooze, light brown or fawn colour, coherent, granular. Calcium carbonate, 62.5%, principally made up of shells of pelagic foraminifera, including Orbulina universa, Globigerina inflata, Buloides equilateralis, Rubra conglobata, Pulvinulina michelliniana, Canariensis menardii. 
with a few bottom-living foraminifera, echinid spines, ostracods, coccoliths, rhabdoliths, and a few coccospheres. Residue, 37.5%. Brown. Minerals, 5%. Mean diameter, 0.1 mm. Angular. Pumice. Volcanic glass. Felspar, etc. Silicious organisms, 2%. Sponge spicules, radiolara, arenaceous foraminifera. Fine washings, 30.5%. Amorphous clayey matter and minute mineral and siliceous particles. The, quote, fine washings, end quote, consist largely of hydrated decomposition products of the type of clay, but include also varying proportions of very finely divided, undecomposed minerals, which cannot be separated from the clay except by chemical means. From the point of view of their origin, marine deposits may be divided into two great classes, terrigenous and pelagic. One, Terrigenous deposits. These are mainly made up of the detrital materials carried down from the land surfaces or torn away from the coastline and shallow water, together with the remains of the organisms which live on the bottom in shallow water. Quartz particles are highly characteristic of these deposits. 2. Pelagic deposits. These are largely made up of the remains of calcareous and siliceous organisms, which have lived in the surface waters of the ocean and have fallen to the bottom after death and of inorganic residue mostly composed of hydrous silicates of iron and alumina, derived chiefly from the disintegration of pumice and other volcanic fragments. Particles of quartz sand are rare, if not quite absent, except in regions affected by floating ice. This scheme of classification is exhibited in the table on page 201, and the accompanying map, plate 11, shows the general distribution of the deposits over the floor of the ocean. Other classifications have been suggested, but none of them appears to be an improvement upon, or to add to the clearness of, the one here adopted. The littoral deposits found between tide marks, and the shallow water deposits found between low water mark and the 100 fathoms line, cover about 10 millions of square miles. Nearshore, these deposits consist of boulders, shingle, gravel, sands, with muds occasionally in sheltered positions. Farther from shore, they consist of gravels, sands, beds of living and dead shells, with muds in estuaries and depressions. The nature and composition of these shore and shallow water deposits are largely determined by the structure and composition of the adjoining land masses, and the character of the benthonic organisms living in the area. Off volcanic islands, there are volcanic gravels, sands and muds. Off coral islands and reefs, there are coral gravels, sands and muds. Off continental coasts, there are usually quartz gravels, quartz sands, and marls. In depths of about 100 fathoms, 600 feet, the limit of wave action and of strong transporting currents is reached, and all the minute detrital matter comes permanently to rest on the bottom, at what has been called the mud line. Beyond this depth, the deposits become much more uniform in their physical characters and composition, although they still derive their general characteristics from the adjoining lands and coasts, and may frequently present a considerable admixture of the remains of pelagic organisms. All deposits laid down in water deeper than 100 fathoms are called deep-sea deposits, and to these we shall here limit our remarks. Terrigenous Deposits 1. Blue Mud this type is the one most frequently met with in the deeper waters surrounding continental land, 
and in all enclosed and partially enclosed seas. The deposit is so called because it is usually of a blue or slate colour, with a thin upper red or brown layer where it has been in contact with the superincumbent water. The colour of the upper layer is due to the presence of hydrated ferric oxide, which, as the deposit accumulates, is partially transformed into ferrous sulphide and oxide in the presence of organic matter in the underlying layers. When dried, the blue colour changes to grey or brown, owing to oxidation of the iron sulphide. Sometimes the blue mud appears to be homogeneous and may have the plasticity of true clay, but as a rule they are heterogeneous from the admixture of larger or smaller rocks and shell fragments, and are rather earthy than clayey. Calcareous and siliceous remains, belonging to plankton organisms, vary greatly in amount according to position. Rock fragments and mineral particles may make up as much as 75%, in some cases the most characteristic species being quartz. The usual proportion of mineral particles is about one-fourth of the whole deposit. Amorphous, clayey and muddy matters are always abundant, the average percentage being about 60, generally increasing in amount with greater distance from the land. 2. Red mud. This type is merely a local variety of blue mud found off the coast of Brazil in the Atlantic and off the coast of China in the Yellow Sea. The red-brown colour, to which it owes its name, being due to the character of the sediment brought down by the large rivers in the vicinity. The ferric oxide is so abundant that it is apparently not all reduced to ferrous oxide, and iron sulphide does not accumulate in this type of deposit, hence the absence of the blue colour so prevalent in the deposits along other continental shores. 3. Green mud. This type may also be regarded as a variety of blue mud, characterised by the abundance of glauconite grains and glauconitic casts of calcareous organisms, which are usually of a greenish colour and impart a green tinge to the deposit, hence the name. Along high and bold coasts, free from large rivers, the deposition of fine detrital matter from the land is less abundant than in other positions, and the continental rock fragments and mineral particles are, there, longer exposed to the solvent action of seawater, the products of their decomposition yielding the materials for the formation of the glauconite. In the shallower waters, nearer the land, the deposits contain less clayey matter and are more granular. They are then called green sands. This type is characteristically represented off the Atlantic and Pacific coasts of North America, off Japan, off Australia and off the Cape of Good Hope, and especially where cold and warm currents meet in the overlying surface water. 4. Volcanic mud. This type occurs around the oceanic islands of volcanic formation and along coasts where there are outcrops of volcanic rocks, the chief characteristic being the relative abundance of volcanic rock fragments and mineral particles. In the shallower waters nearer the shore, the deposits are coarser, and contain less fine clayey matters, and are therefore called volcanic sands. 5. Coral mud. This deposit is found around the oceanic islands of coral formation, and along coasts bordered by coral reefs, being characterised by the abundance of fragments of corals and other calcareous organisms living in the shallow waters and on the reefs. These fragments form a coarse sand or gravel near the reefs, and then the deposit is called coral sand. 
but with increasing depth and distance from the reefs, the calcareous materials from the reefs become finer and finer in grain, forming frequently an impalpable coral mud, which passes at its seaward margin into pteropod, or globigerina ooze. Pelagic deposits. 6. Globigerina ooze. This type of deposit is second in importance only to the red clay, covering an extensive area throughout all the great ocean basins. It is characterised by the abundance of shells of pelagic foraminifera, and especially those belonging to the genus Globigerina. In tropical regions, the foraminiferous shells may be visible to the naked eye, but usually the deposit appears to be homogeneous and of a fawn or greyish colour sometimes forming an incoherent powder when dried. Besides foraminifera, many other calcareous remains may be found in the globigerina oozes. Some of them, like the pelagic mollusks and pelagic algae, are derived from the surface waters. Others, like echinoderms, worms, mollusks, corals and bryozoans, are the remains of bottom-living forms. The percentage of calcium carbonate in the globigerina ooze always exceeds 30 and rises in the purest samples to over 90, the average being usually between 60 and 70. The remains of the pelagic foraminifera generally make up about one half of the deposit, but the amount and the species vary according to latitude and depth. Within the tropics, in depths of 1500 and 2000 fathoms, the percentage of calcium carbonate due to the shells of pelagic foraminifera may reach 90 and nearly every known species may be represented in the deposits. But on proceeding towards the polar regions, the percentage and the number of species in the deposits from similar depths gradually diminish, the large, thick-shelled tropical forms disappearing, until in the cold polar waters only one or two dwarfed forms are met with. The percentage of calcareous remains other than those of pelagic foraminifera in the globigerina oozes is also subject to great variation, being on the average about 10 or 12, while the remains of siliceous organisms usually make up 1 or 2%, and mineral particles 3 or 4%. The inorganic residue of a globigerina ooze resembles in all respects a red clay, and has evidently a similar origin. This type of deposit covers an estimated area of about 48 millions of square miles, extending from latitude 60 degrees south in the South Pacific to beyond latitude 70 degrees north in the Norwegian Sea. It is specially characteristic of the Atlantic Ocean, where it occurs at greater depths than in the other ocean basins. 7. Pteropod ooze. This type may be regarded as a variety of Globigerina ooze, characterised by the relatively greater abundance of the shells of pteropods and heteropods fallen from the surface waters. As these pelagic mollusks are to a large extent limited to the warmer waters of the ocean, pteropod oozes are found only in the tropical and subtropical regions, where they occur in less depths than Globigerina ooze. This deposit covers an estimated area of about half a million miles, especially in the neighbourhood of coral reefs, and on the summits and sides of submarine elevations far from land. 8. Diatom ooze. This type of deposit is distinguished by the abundance of the frustules of diatoms fallen from the surface waters, and occurs in those regions of the ocean where diatoms flourish luxuriantly, 
notably in the Great Southern and Antarctic Oceans, but also along the northern border of the Pacific. When dry, the diatom oozes are not unlike dirty flour, and appear to be homogenous, but when they occur in localities affected by floating icebergs, there is usually an admixture of larger and smaller mineral particles, sometimes even boulders and rock fragments, with a small proportion of the remains of calcareous organisms, principally pelagic foraminifera, belonging to one or two cold water species. This type of deposit covers an estimated area of about 10 millions of square miles, forming a nearly continuous band around the south polar regions, with a smaller area in the North Pacific. 9. Red clay. This type is probably the most characteristic and most widely distributed of all the deep sea deposits. The basis of the deposit is hydrated silicate of alumina and iron, which usually makes up fully half the bulk, there being an admixture sometimes of calcareous and sometimes of siliceous remains, with volcanic mineral particles more or less decomposed, fragments of pumice, grains or nodules of manganese peroxide, ear bones of whales, teeth of sharks, zeolitic crystals, etc. Calcareous remains are absent in the red clay from very deep water, but in less depths they may increase in abundance until the deposit merges gradually into globigerina ooze. In like manner, siliceous remains may be absent from the red clays of certain regions, but in other localities, radiolarian skeletons or diatom frustules may become so abundant that the deposit passes on the one hand into radiolarian ooze, and on the other into diatom ooze. Of the inorganic admixtures in the red clays, pumice is the most constant and most widely distributed. It occurs in fragments bigger than a man's head, down to the most minute particles, recognisable only under the highest magnifying powers, and in all stages of decomposition, some almost unaltered, others surrounded by zones of alteration, and others so profoundly decomposed as to have lost nearly all trace of their original structure, and often enclosed within a thick coating of manganese peroxide. The crystalline materials found in pumice, like sanidine, plagioclase, augite, etc., are also characteristic of red clays, as well as of globigerina and pteropod oozes along with the volcanic glassy fragments more or less completely decomposed into pelagonite. The origin of the red clay has been much discussed, but it is now generally admitted that the clayey matter is chiefly derived from the decomposition of volcanic particles in situ. The peroxides of iron and manganese are universally present in red clays, in the form of grains or coatings or deposited concentrically around a nucleus as nodules of larger or smaller size. Among less frequent constituents found in the red clays are small magnetic, metallic or chondritic spherules, which are supposed to have formed part of the tails of meteorites and to have fallen from interstellar space, zeolitic crystals formed in situ from the decomposition products of basic volcanic debris, Windborne particles from desert regions and in some areas iceborne rock fragments and minerals from polar regions, and volcanic ashes derived from both subaerial and submarine eruptions. Traces of many of the rarer metals have been detected in the manganese nodules from the red clay areas. 
The proportion and size of the mineral particles in the red clays vary greatly, but as a general rule, if we accept the nodules formed in situ, they are very small, the larger ones usually showing traces of profound alteration. The great bulk of the red clays consists of what are called fine washings, largely made up of clay matter, intimately mixed with oxides of iron and manganese, and the smallest comminuted fragments of the other constituents found in the same deposits. Red clay covers an area estimated at about 50 millions of square miles. In the Pacific Ocean, it attains its maximal development, but it is also present in the Indian and Atlantic Oceans. In the Atlantic, the red clays are usually of a lighter shade of red than in the Indian and Pacific, where they very frequently assume a dark chocolate brown colour due to the large proportion of grains of manganese peroxide. 10. Radiolarian ooze. This type is merely a variety of red clay in which the skeletons of radiolaria and the frustules of the large diatom Coscinodiscus rex, fallen from the surface waters, become so abundant as to form an appreciable proportion of the deposit. Otherwise, the mineral particles, brackets, pumice and volcanic glass, more or less completely transformed into pelagonite associated with manganese peroxide in grains and nodules, close brackets, and other constituents are similar to those in the red clays. It will be seen from the map that this type of deposit is limited to those regions of the ocean where the surface conditions are favourable for the development of radiolarians in great profusion, as in certain parts of the Pacific and Indian Oceans, where radiolarian oozes cover an area estimated at about 2 millions of square miles. In the Atlantic, this type is quite unknown. Murray and Irvine have shown experimentally that the remains of siliceous organisms are removed in solution, like those of calcareous organisms, and the reason why they are found in greater depths and more abundantly in some deposits than in others depends upon their greater or less abundance in the surface waters. End of section 17. Read by Luke Hamilton, Hobart, August 2022.